Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is journalist and author Daniel Golden. Mr. Golden is a senior editor editor at ProPublica. He's also worked at Bloomberg News, where a series he edited won a Pulitzer Prize in 2015, as well as at the Wall Street Journal and the Boston Globe. He's also the author of The Price of Admission, How America's Ruling Class Buys Its Way into Elite Colleges and Who Gets Left Outside the Gates, and most recently, Spy Schools, How the CIA, FBI, and Foreign Intelligence Secretly Exploit America's Universities. Daniel Golden, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be with you. You know, to start with, can you talk about how you first learned about spying in higher education and what led you to write a book about it? Well, I've always been, I've covered higher education a long time, and I've always been interested in, in spying on college campuses, probably from reading, uh, you know, John le Carre when I was growing up and all about the, the Cambridge Five in England and so on. But the immediate impetus here came uh, when I was, I was working on a story about Confucius Institutes, which are these China-funded and China-staffed uh, institutes on a lot of American campuses as well as in other countries. And... I noticed in the clippings that that there had been a case at the University of South Florida in Tampa where a professor had been suspended for financial mismanagement of a of a Confucius Institute. He was uh, born in China but a US citizen his name was Dajin Pong and in in this article it it quoted him as saying, "Oh you don't understand this is all the FBI's fault." And uh, I contacted Pong, and he wouldn't talk to me. And I contacted the university, and they said, oh, this has nothing to do with the FBI. But then a few years later, Pong got in touch with me, and he said, you know, I have, I have evidence that the FBI was deeply involved in my case. And what turned out to have happened was that when Pong had these financial problems at the university that led them to suspend him, uh, the FBI went to him, and they said, uh, you know, you've got a choice. You can either, uh, you know, lose your professorship and maybe go to prison for your uh, expense account fraud and <clears throat> other wrongdoing, or you can keep your job. We'll, we'll talk to the university and keep your job, and you can spy on China and the Confucius Institutes for us. So I was amazed by this. I mean, it was like, uh, you know, a, a level of interference by intelligence agencies with universities that I, I hadn't heard of before in the U.S. But I talked to... Uh, other sort of, uh, you know, intelligence insider types. And they said, oh, no, this, this isn't unusual at all. This happens quite often. And I realized that, you know, there was a whole uh, subculture of CIA and FBI uh, influence on college campuses that I wasn't aware of. And then I also gradually became aware that there was a lot of foreign intelligence activity, too, because of globalization and the huge number of foreign students and, and researchers and visiting scholars and professors in the country. So that's where this book came out of. And, and so if I understand it correctly, it happens in sort of four basic ways, right? You have American spy agencies who recruit foreign students studying in the U.S. and then American agencies who recruit uh, Americans studying abroad and foreign agencies are essentially doing more or less the same thing. Is that is is that about right? Yeah, all those things are going on. And there's some other things going on, too, which is that you know, foreign intelligence agencies are also interested in uh, getting access to the research that's going on at universities, particularly kind of sensitive research funded by the military or the intelligence agencies. And then abroad, uh, there are Americans who go abroad who, uh, 
you know, foreign intelligence is interested in, re in recruiting them. Uh, so it's kind of almost everything you could think of in terms of the, there's another direction where academic conferences around the world, which attract, you know, uh, professors and scientists from lots of countries, they're, uh, they're also have, you know, undercover agents from intelligence agencies, uh, you know, from the CIA and, and, and American agencies to foreign agencies trying to recruit those scientists uh, undercover. So there's just a plethora of ways that I lay out in my book that there's kind of intelligence influence in academia. And, and given how, well, clandestine this is supposed to be, because ideally, right, if it's working, nobody knows about it. Uh, do you think that what you uncovered is sort of the tip of a large larger iceberg? I mean, is there a lot more than meets the eye to this, do you think? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, I found quite a, quite a few different case studies and, and of all these kinds of different, uh, you know, intelligence activities. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's, there's much, much more that I don't know about. I mean, my, I focused on, for example, on uh, Russia in the foreign side, Russian intelligence, Chinese intelligence, uh, Cuban intelligence and, and don't have that much about other countries. Uh, I'm sure they're active as well. It's just that, you know, my informants and my research didn't lead me in those directions. But, uh, you know, so there, there's, I'm sure there's many more intelligence agencies active than I, than I found. Right. And, and in the book, you point out, correct, that it, this isn't just something that happens at Ivy League schools, right? That's right. I, uh, far beyond the Ivy League. Some, you know, uh, any uh, university that does, you know, significant uh, science research is certainly, uh, you know, a potential candidate for uh, uh, foreign uh, intelligence. And, uh, uh, you know, I did, the, 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 there's cases from Iowa State. There was a Chinese researcher there who, who used his, his university position to try and get you know, sensors that uh, were not supposed to be exported to China to, to get them sent there. I look at Marietta College, uh, you know, a rural uh, Ohio college, and its bizarre partnership with a university in Beijing called the University of International Relations, which operates like a normal university on the outside, but is actually uh, partly funded and, and overseen by China's intelligence ministry and, and trains a lot of China spies. And Yet it's, uh, you know, exchanging faculty with Marietta and uh, all kinds of other sending students over to Marietta. So, uh, yes, it, it runs a gamut of uh, uh, Ivy League private universities, state universities, liberal arts colleges like Marietta. It's, uh, it's you know, quite widespread. And is this sort of thing common over time or is it just a post 9-11 sort of phenomenon or, or, or what? Well, it's gotten more prevalent over time um, <clears throat> for a couple of reasons. One is, as I mentioned, you know, globalization. I mean, on, until 1978, there weren't any Chinese students or professors at American universities because China was closed to the West. I mean, now there's more than 300,000 Chinese students. And, you know, the vast majority are just coming here as students. But, you know, there are some that, that have other ulterior motives. I mean, I, I described one case at Duke of a... Chinese graduate student who came over and uh, to work on invisibility research that was funded by the Pentagon and and uh, essentially kind of pilfered it and brought it back to China and by the time Duke recognized it and took away his key to the lab it was too late and he started a competing institute and in business in China with that research and and became a billionaire so so that's you know that's new uh, I mean that that's 
as the number of Chinese students has, has grown, that that's become more of an issue. Um, <clears throat> the other thing is the difference between the relationship between universities and intelligence, American intelligence agencies. The uh, that's kind of you know waxed and waned, and as you mentioned, since 9/11, American universities have become much more accommodating to the intelligence community. You know, the the national mood has changed, and also the number of programs that, you know, fund uh, universities and, you know, run, run and are, you know, funding from the intelligence agencies has really expanded. So universities have a lot of financial reasons to look the other way if the, the CIA or FBI are, you know, undercover recruiting of their, you know, foreign students and professors. Right. You know, I wanted to ask you about that financial reasons. You know, of course, a lot of schools in the U.S. are struggling financially, you know, especially public institutions and states that have cut higher ed funding since really since the Great Recession. And one thing we've seen is that in a lot of these schools, including my school, in fact, have made major efforts to uh, recruit international students and students whose education in many cases is either partially or fully funded by their their governments. And I'm wondering, do you think that schools that are taking this route are making it easier for foreign governments to spy on the United States? Well, I, I certainly think that there's a there's a financial incentive for these universities to look the other way, right? So that, uh, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of state universities ha are not getting the, the state funding they used to get, and they take more full-paying uh, international students. And uh, so that's an incentive not to uh, uh, pay too much attention to uh, possibly, you know, people spying or, or uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, poaching research. And uh, in the Duke case, for example, around the time that it, it gave the, the researcher, even though there were a lot of suspicions about that Chinese researcher, Duke awarded him a doctorate. It was just around the time that Duke was negotiating to open a campus in China. So a lot of these schools, not just do they bring in uh, foreign students who, who pay tuition, but they're opening branches overseas, and often those are subsidized by the host country. So, you know, there's not that much financial risk and there's a lot of potential upside and they don't want some kind of international incident that is going to interfere with that. Now, it, you use the word exploiting in the subtitle of your book. And, and of course, to most people, that has a negative connotation. But, but I'm wondering, can this be seen as a as a good thing or at least, you know, something that U.S. intelligence services need to do for legitimate reasons of national security? Well, uh Yes, I mean, it can be seen that way, and I'm sure, the, obviously, the intelligence agencies see it that way. That's why they're, uh, uh, you know, active on campus. But, you know, my, my book uh, uh, is mostly about, as you say, the, the, the damage that's caused, and there's damage both on a kind of big and small level. On, on the big level, there's, you know, uh, damage to sort of academic freedom and principles. I mean, universities are not supposed to be totally at the service of of the government i mean they have they're kind of quasi independent they have their own integrity i mean let, let me give you one example i <clears throat> i found in my book that the cia uh agents uh enroll undercover at harvard's kennedy school of government which is of course the country's premier public policy program in the mid-career program which is predominantly made up of foreigners so you've got a situation where uh, these CIA intelligence officers posing as, you know, State Department Foreign Service officers or diplomats, which is the cover that they've been using overseas, 
are, you know, classmates, you know, rubbing elbows with future foreign leaders, business people and government officials and so on, and essentially cultivating them. And then, you know, can, and, and, and these foreigners are unwitting, you know, they don't know that this is a CIA agent next to them. They think it's somebody from the State Department. So I find that, you know, troubling in a couple ways. One is we bring these foreigners over for the mid-career program, Harvard does, and then, um, you know, they, they, they don't know who they're dealing with, and there might be a situation where when everybody goes home, the CIA keeps tapping this person for information, and then, you know, the foreigner might never know who they're, who they're talking to. So that's exploitation in my view. And the other thing is, you know, one of the points of those kind of programs and of classrooms in general is to have, you know, students candidly share their life experiences. And I find it troubling, but, you know, obviously the CIA could argue, well, this is great for national security where we're developing, uh, you know, future sources. So, uh, yeah, it depends on, on how you look at it. I'm just, I'm just trying to expose what's going on and raise some questions about it. Right. You know, I, I think it's safe to say that President Trump certainly is more skeptical about immigration than President Obama was, or, or really more skeptical than, I guess, any U.S. president in recent memory has been. And I'm wondering, do you think that the president's policies might make a, a positive difference, at least in terms of foreign spying on, on U.S. campuses? Well, I don't think so. I mean, uh, one thing, you know, his travel ban has been his big initiative in this direction, and it's not clear yet to me how it's going to play out. And in some forms of it, it's basically <clears throat> exempted students and professors. So, uh, and if they're the only people from their country who are allowed to come over, there'll be more of a burden on them to, to gather intelligence probably. Um, and a couple other ways he might be uh, uh, actually abetting it. I mean, he's kind of uh, unpredictable and he's kind of, you know, belligerent, you know, warlike in his... Uh, Remarks, and so I imagine foreign intelligence services are very anxious to to figure out, you know, what exactly he intends to do. And you know, it, it's it's not that easy to just find out from a high government official. So often they'll go to universities and try and cultivate professors who might interact with the government and see what they know. So that might encourage more of it. And the other thing is, you know, he's talked a lot about pulling out of the Iran nuclear agreement, and back before. We had the agreement. One of the ways the, the CIA tried to slow down Iran developing a nuclear bomb was by staging these fake academic conferences where they'd secretly fund a conference that was in a specialty that they knew was the research interest of some Iranian nuclear scientist that they wanted to get to defect to the U.S. and somebody key to Iran's program. So they'd set up this conference. They would invite the Iranian professor uh, or scientist. The guy would come to the conference. They'd to separate him from his entourage and uh, try and pressure him to defect to the U.S. So, uh, so you know, that obviously was not needed as much after the agreement was signed because Iran agreed not to develop nuclear weapons for a period of time. But uh, now, you know, that kind of thing might come back into fashion. So it's a more complicated picture. I, I don't see this uh, particularly dying down. Mm -hmm. Now, is there anything that colleges and universities can do to make themselves less vulnerable to this sort of thing? Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, in the Duke case that I mentioned, I mean, part of the problem that enabled this researcher from China to, uh, uh, you know, get a lot of the stuff out of Duke's lab was kind of the, the informality of the whole thing. Like, he brought in 
Chinese collaborators, and they came over and took pictures of the equipment that Duke had built. Uh, well, there was not like a prior agreement, a collaboration agreement saying you can or you can't take pictures, or this is what you can photograph, and this is what you can't photograph. And, and the same went for sort of all the other aspects of that. There's, academia still operates on kind of a trusting gentleman's agreement type thing. And I think, you know, if you spell out more of the responsibilities of each party, that might help on the research side. And then on, <clears throat> on the admissions side, I mean, there's certain, you know, signs that they might look for. Like this university in China I mentioned that, that's run by the uh, spy services there. Well, uh, I mean, the U.S. knows that, that, you know, the Ministry of Intelligence is involved with that school. They ought to, you know, make sure, you know, colleges ought to take a close look if somebody is, is coming, applying for graduate school and that's where they went undergraduate. And, you know, maybe get in touch with the CIA or FBI and say, you know, what about this candidate? Should I be worried about this person? So uh, there are things that, uh, you know, universities can do just to take it seriously. I mean, there were people unmasked as, as Russian spies <clears throat> posing under false names at, you know, at Columbia, for example, and Columbia still gave uh, the spy that they, they, they didn't uh, take away the degree, you know, the, the, the business school degree that they had awarded. Uh, so, uh, I mean, if they, they take it seriously, if they punish it when they find it or when it's unmasked and take some precautions, uh, all that would help a lot. I, I want to go back to one other thing you asked me about that I forgot to say, which is, um, you know, asking about whether, you know, this can be seen as a, as a good thing in general, uh, you know, and, and some people have said that to me. They said, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with espionage and it, it you know, helps understanding between countries and that's all fine. And, and you know, I just, you know, what I found was there's a lot of collateral damage. You know, there, there's young people who get, you know, sucked in, maybe they're ideologically fervent or they're young and impressionable and, there's professors like the guy at South Florida who get pressured and, you know, into spying. And, and so um, my book tries to tell some of these stories, you know, and I think they're both, you know, instructive and, and interest, interesting to read about some of these victims who kind of get caught and, you know, scarred and, and wounded and then kind of thrown away. Yeah. And, and there really are, in reading through the book, I was just amazed at some of the stories. It read like a, like a spy novel at times. And so I just really surprised that this was going on. So uh, with that, I think we'll close. So thank you so much, Daniel Golden, for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks. It was a great pleasure. I appreciate it. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked what you heard. Listener support is a really big help to us, and we truly do appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link. And if you'd like to support the show without spending anything, it really does help if you get the word out by sharing this episode with your friends and followers or passing along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also does really help. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do that at mail at politicsguys.com or through our Facebook page where you can message us and we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.